one, two, three, four, five, six, alpha, beta, gamma, delta, happy birthday to me, happy birthday to me. Good morning and welcome to episode 50, friends. That was the smooth sound of today's guest, our special guest, our 50th guest. Before I do the intro of our guest, I would like to just say a few things. A huge thank you first to all of the guests that we've had from one to episode 50 and the ones that I've already talked to about doing more. Without you and you sharing your incredible stories and your experiences and your unique journey to this creative field, this podcast just would not be possible. So thank you so much for investing your time into creating this community of designers and illustrators and and creatives wanting to learn and hear about these stories and and take them for inspiration um, in their own journey. A huge thank you also to the listeners for your reviews, for listening and spending some of your valuable personal time listening to these guests share their stories and pour their heart out and tell you, um, you know, from their own experiences, the things that they've learned along the way, the things that they're excited about and the things that motivate them to continue going in this creative career despite the hardships. So thank you so much to the listeners. I love reading your reviews. I love seeing those ratings come through. So please keep that up. I really appreciate it. And so in true quickie podcast style, let's get to today's guest. Today's guest is Leland Mashmeyer. He is the chief creative officer of Chobani out of New York City. He also was the co-founder and chief creative officer of Collins, a design and marketing agency also in New York. On this episode, Leland tells us about his childhood and the elements of a potential creative career that excited him and the parts of it that he just wasn't too excited about. He also shares with us the Collins startup story. He tells us how him and Brian Collins got connected first off and then a short period of time after they got connected, they started the Collins agency. Leland also tells us that first huge client that Collins landed, the one that they were just, they needed that big break moment, that finally moment, and how they strategically approached that project and that creative brief. He shares that with us. Now, Leland also tells us about the Chobani rebrand, a project that would typically take two and a half years that they hammered out in nine months, what they learned in that process, the struggles and challenges they encountered, and how they pulled it off in such a tight timeline to achieve the results that they wanted to. Leland also shares the role that architecture has played in his design career. He tells us about an app, a great tool that he uses to consume a variety of content that later leads into story creation and potential design direction on future briefs. He tells us also how he finds clarity through reading, and that helps him craft his next step, the next direction. He shares some incredible history and how it relates to design and his perspective on it as well. Guys, this episode is jam-packed. Leland was such a great guest to chat with, so much knowledge and information to share with a creative audience. He loves sharing it. So let's get to this one. Ladies and gentlemen, my 50th guest, Leland Mashmeyer. Here we go. Welcome 
Welcome to the Quickie Podcast, the daily interview show where we talk to graphic designers about their journey to the creative field. And we do it in 30 minutes or less. So, are you ready for a Quickie? Good morning, Leland. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm glad you can make it. Are you ready to go here? I'm ready to go. All right. The toughest questions first. So briefly tell the listeners about yourself. Uh, So my name is Leland Mashmar. I'm the chief creative officer of Chobani in New York City. And prior to that, I was the co-founder and chief creative officer of the design firm Collins. Got it. And how long, when did Collins start? Collins started in 2007. 2007 in New York as well then? Yes, correct. Got it. So that started as the, you know, the scrappy startup that you were in there with, you know, wondering first year, how are we going to feed our families and grew it and grew it and grew it. Yep. Yep. We, uh, we were not immune to typical startup struggles. <laughs> Perfect. What were you doing before Collins? What made you want to sort of break away? Um, and what were you doing to start that? Uh, prior to that, I was kind of had a bit of a dual career. I was doing a lot of freelance graphic design um, by night, and then by day, I was working at an ad agency in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. So you didn't move to New York until you were ready to start Collins. Yeah, I mean the 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 long story in a nutshell is I was writing a blog in 2006, mm-hmm. something like that back when blogs were still a hot thing. (laughs) Yes. And uh, my future business partner, Brian Collins, became a fan of the blog, wanted to meet me. I flew up to New York to meet him in 2006. And pretty much six months later, we were uh, starting a new design firm together with each other. That's cool. Yeah, that's the startup story. Yep. So I want to go back even further than that. And what was your childhood like? And do you feel that you had a creative childhood? that led you in this career path? Yeah, so I grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee, and in Alpharetta, Georgia. So I was a Southern boy through and through. Uh, mainly spent it playing in the woods. You know, I played way too many sports. You know, pretty standard uh, kind of middle-class life. Um, but I was lucky enough to be born with some artistic talent. Mm-hmm. And um, had, you know, special classes created for me in the public schools that I was in because I was lucky enough to have some teachers who recognized my abilities and um, just really my entire life just enjoyed art, drawing, making, being any type of creative. Um, but as you you know get into high school and you start thinking about college and stuff, you start having conversations about, well, what do I want to do? Mm-hmm. And growing up in uh you know, kind of rural South, a little more suburban, really the only narrative of creative professionalism that I was exposed to was that of the starving artist. Mm -hmm. And the idea of making wall decorations for wealthy people wasn't particularly exciting for me. And so I began a journey just to try to figure out, well, how can I be creative, but still be challenged with bigger scale problems? And I had no idea um, what that could be. Uh, while I was doing this, you know, we're trying to figure out where to go to college and stuff. And my parents, you know, were very encouraging and they actually wanted me to go to fine art school. Cool. They were like, no, 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 go, go to college and paint. We'll pay for it. We want you to do it. You're really talented at it. 
Um, I had other teachers who encouraged me in that way as well. But I just, <clears throat> I just couldn't get over the hump of like, well, I'm just going to be a starving artist. Like I, that's just not exciting to me. Mm-hmm. So I, I was exposed to the idea of advertising in high school and it represented at the time the perfect blend of creativity, cultural influence, b- big scale business challenges, naughty, thorny challenges. And I was like, oh, that sounds really interesting. That feels like it could feed both sides of my brain. Mm-hmm. And so I went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill to study advertising. And then that's how I got into the industry. Um, but all through it, I looking back on it and knowing what I know now, I was doing nothing but design pretty much throughout my childhood. Like I would redesign baseball logos. Um, <laughs> I would design jewel cases for CDs. I remember designing one with deconstructed um, type for the Deftones. I You're would, a Deftones guy, right on. Yeah, I would, I would create... Um, you know, hand lettering on all my notebooks, practicing different styles and stuff. Like I, I didn't know what any of this was called. I just called it drawing. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I always wondered what would happen if earlier in my life, someone had exposed the idea of design with a capital D to me and said, Oh, you're doing everything that design does come over here and let me show you what that's like. I want, I've always been curious where my life would have gone had that happened. Mm hmm. That's interesting. Well, then it's going to come full circle for you. Um, I'll let you know from an interview that I did uh, a few weeks ago, um, the person's first inspiration, and this is leading into this next question, first um, place where they noticed the design in the world was on a yogurt container. Now, this was back in the early 90s, but I imagine the products that you guys are putting out now will be leading to that for some people. Yeah, you know, hopefully. I mean, you, you know, I think with every opportunity we're given at Chobani, we try to not only do the best for the company, but really and truthfully do the best for the design community and, mm-hmm. and do ideas that no matter how seemingly unimportant the opportunity is, can become something creatively powerful and yeah. interesting and an opportunity for the people working on it to learn and uh, an example of how there is no limit to the magic that creativity can bring to things. Definitely. I mean, it's, it's an ambitious thought, but I think at the end of the day, if you want to do good work, you have to approach everything that you're presented with that eye. 100%. So then take us back to when you first started noticing design in the world. You had been drawing, you had been um, you know, essentially designing all throughout childhood and doing lettering and things like that. But when did you, did, was there a light bulb moment where you noticed design out in the world and went, oh, that's design? Um, it's an interesting question. Uh, because, you know, I, I think I had two different moments with design i had my experience with design not knowing it was design and then my experience with design knowing and being able to name it as design um i I think really the first idea of design for me was in t-shirt design okay and you know, being a designer, you can't help but being an athlete, someone who cares deeply about the visuality of the world. And so naturally that connects itself with fashion and clothing and style. And so, 
you know, always being a kid, you're always kind of navigating your identity oftentimes through what you wear and the logos you see other people wearing, what those logos say about other people. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember being in sixth grade, you know, when you graduate from elementary school to the more kind of social complexities of middle school mm-hmm. and noticing the bifurcation of graphic t-shirts that different social classes or social groups within the school would wear. And I became clear of like how, you know, certain kids were wearing life form t-shirts and what that would say about those certain kids versus Mm -hmm. other kids who would wear a different brand of t-shirts and stuff. And, you know, er early in, early in my life, I would design t-shirts that I thought were cool and, you know, didn't know, again, didn't know it was called graphic design, Mm -hmm. But to me, it was always about how do you understand what visual language, graphic language, graphic arts say about the person who is associating with themselves with that specific expression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting, interesting um, perspective on it, almost uh, class and category by, by design. Mm-hmm. For sure it's in that. My oldest yeah. is uh, going into middle school next year, so I'll have to pay more attention to that. What do I, yeah. what do I want oh. her t-shirts to say? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, perfect. So what has been the most influential design of your life so far? Are there something that you've seen or something that you've been a part of? Oof, most influential design. Um, I'll, I'll probably leave that to something that I've seen as opposed to something I've made or been a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, I think probably the most influential piece of design has probably been you know I was always really obsessed with brutalist architecture when I was younger um, my parents were my mom studied history in college and always had a big appetite for history and so th- that combined with the fact that my parents would just feed me anything um, that I really liked meant that I was always exposed to a lot of different things in depth that I was really passionate about. And so when I showed this interest in brutalist architecture, because it looked like architecture from the world of star Wars, my parents were like, cool, here's more books on brutalist architecture. Cool. And for me, it was completely fascinating because it didn't look like anything on the planet. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, it it literally looked to me like something like to my, you know, young preteen mind, like something that, uh, landed on the planet and was part of a distant civilization an outpost of a distant civilization. And I always remember thinking like, those are the buildings I want to work in when I get older or, uh, or I want to be able to design things like that or, or make things like that, that people really notice and pay attention to and are, are visually impacted by. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just, it was just so profound that somebody made something like that and that they were given permission and money and opportunity to do that. And for me, that was always like the the goal. It wasn't so much architecture as it was just to create things that leave a mark and leave an impression with people. Um, it was pretty powerful realization. Definitely. I love that answer because it's, um, and what I've loved about what I, why I keep going to this question is because every guest interprets it, interprets it just a little bit differently and gives a really unique individual answer that, you know, that tells the listener about themselves. So that's really interesting. You went that way. Um, 
who is a designer or a brand that you look up to or closely follow? And what is it about them that you like? Um, so this may sound a little bit repetitive, but it's again in the world of architecture, uh -huh. um, just because I, I think in many ways, architecture, and I'm not, I'm not the first person to ever say this, but architecture is the mother of historically been the mother of all, uh, creative and design disciplines. Um, there's certainly lots of other things in brand and stuff that I admire and stuff, but I think architecture is a bit like physics in that it pushes your thinking beyond and I'm going to just leave it at that pushes it beyond. Mm -hmm. But one particular architect, Louis Kahn, has really had an impact on my life and, and my thinking and really helped me understand where I sit in the landscape of design and design thinkers and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, the thing that I love so much about Louis Kahn was he, he was a bit of um, an extension. Um, not He was in but not of the brutalist movement, um, a lot of the same gestures, a lot of the same materials, um, very much drawing from that heritage of brutalist Martinism. But the difference is that when you stand in a con building, it has this sense of, of permanence and immortality and transcendence to it that no other modernist building has that no other um brutalist building has and what i find so powerful about it is is he used the same materials and means of any of the other modernists at the time mm -hmm. but the spirit the almost religiousness that he brought to his use of those materials created something transcendent like he didn't believe sorry i keep interrupting you but he no. he didn't believe that architecture was the creation of space he believed architecture was the reaching out for truth and that no room could be a room until light hit it and so what he actually was designing with were archetypes and light and when you really dig into his work he's drawing on eternal themes and how he lays stuff out he is using concrete and space and scale and geometry in service of light so that the light transforms the room and transforms you in a completely different way and takes you beyond that room. And to, uh, to, today, Tadao Ando, the Japanese architect, the other mm -hmm. brutalist architects, kind of designs in the exact same way. Um, and so um, what is so powerful about it is, is that they're able to take something that is very common, but also make it feel transcendent at the exact same time. Um, so almost that there's an energy coming from his design that you can sense when you're in his buildings. Um, you can just get this feeling of what was done to create this space. Oh my God, it's, it's incredibly powerful. Um, a, a little a story. So he designed the National Assembly building in uh, Bangladesh. Okay. And it's beautiful. I mean, I think it was done in the early 70s, maybe late 60s or something. But it's huge. It kind of rises above the landscape. And um, it's, it's impressive beyond words. In the, in the war between India and Bangladesh, um, the Indian army was bombing, just carpet bombing all parts of Bangladesh. And they were being pretty much indiscriminate in how they were doing it because they were just trying to maximize the amount of damage and stuff. And so... They, the, but the bank, the National Assembly building remained untouched. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. But you would think that that was one of the main uh, buildings that they should have bombed uh, in part of a war strategy, but they didn't because they actually thought it was an ancient ruin, (laughs) an ancient religious ruin. And so they said, we're not going to touch that. And they flew over it and kept bombing other stuff. But you don't even have to step into these buildings to have a sense from looking at them from the outside of just that there's something more to it than space, scale, and concrete. And when you were... That's always been something that I've wanted to imbue into everything that I uh, work on. Because the way you were describing the architecture earlier on, it almost sounded as if you were describing some sort of Mayan ruins or, um, you know, beautiful historical buildings, much like you had been describing. Mm -hmm. All right. So the next few questions kind of take you down a part of your career that where you maybe learned some lessons from. Um, But I promise I turn the bus around and bring it back to the positive side. So the next question I have for you is what has been the most challenging time in your design career so far? Why was it challenging and how did you get through it? Uh, There's been several. Um, I I would definitely say that one of the first foremost was being a bit lost Mm -hmm. in where my creative talents and sense of self would reside in the world. So that's really in that transition between working in advertising and not knowing I was a designer to that, you know, moment of realization when I realized, oh, God, I'm a designer and mm-hmm. in, in, with a capital D. And so in that moment, you're just kind of like lost in the wilderness. You, you think you know where you're going and then you don't. And you're really kind of struggling to kind of make sense of all the noise around you. So how did you get through that then? What was the what was the the sort of catalyst point that caused you to realize that I'm a designer? I can't I have to cross these things off of my list and really focus on this. Um, I finally realized I was a designer through a lot of reading. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the great things is no matter how lost you are, there's been people who've been there before you. And that no matter how much and that often the 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 act of reaching out and trying to understand things beyond you is also the act of reaching in and discovering who you are. They're they're one in the same thing. The opposites are actually the same pathway. So I first came across that idea by um, a, a pop philosopher named Alan de Botton, who's written a lot of different books, and he created a, a school called the School of um, oh, God, uh, oh my God I can't remember the name of it uh, School of Life. In England, it was a little shop, and the whole pre- and I always wanted to go there. I'd never been there, but the whole premise was was that everything you need to know about life has already been written down in the books and the stories and the great authors of the past. Um, so just go to them, turn to them for whatever ails you, turn to them. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just naturally a learner and a lover of learning, so I just took that to heart, and that's how I found my way out of the wilderness. And the really cool thing about the the school is the little shop is. When you walk in the front door, they mm-hmm. set up a threshold moment where there are actual bunch of trees that you walk through. What? So you're like literally walking out of the wilderness into the clearing. That is cool. And yeah, it's, the, it's a nice the school of life. Yeah, school of life. <laughs> That's perfect. Um, then take us to a specific design or a project you were a part of that did not go well or bring the desired result. Um, what was that like and how did that feel? Um. I, I won't name the company by name, no, but sure. it, was, 
it was a company that uh, was working in the athletic wear space. Um, mm-hmm. It's not a big company. It's a smaller company. Um, but the, the trouble with it was that um, we were just sort of misaligned from the very beginning as to what was to happen. Um, they looked at us as a bit more of a production arm rather than a strategic partner. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, as a startup, were caught up in the issue of product market fit, meaning like, how do I just sell this one thing that gets me into as many retail locations as possible? And we were thinking in the perspective of like, what's possibility? Where can you go? How can this happen? And so there were just different, there was a misalignment in timescales. And I also think at the end of the day, we weren't the right design partners for them. Like we could have, yes, we did great design work. And I thought that given the product and given who they are and their their ambitions at the time, we did incredible design work. Mm-hmm. But they were so obsessed with copying the playbook of other large-scale athletic wear companies mm-hmm. that they pretty much asked us just to copy what those other companies did. And we didn't the, – the stuff that I thought was spot on and strategically perfect and aesthetically beautiful – wasn't executed mm-hmm. and w- what ended up being kind of put out i thought was very very subpar to what it could have been and, and it's nothing that i would put my my name to um, but it all goes back to the misalignment of ambition and t- at, at that point in time so the lesson in that is so what did you pull from the lesson as the lesson in that well i i think there are at different life stages of a company mm-hmm. require different types of design partners. Yes. Uh, and so what that means is, is that just because you're a design firm doesn't mean you can work with anyone. You really do need um, the right partner at the right time. Sometimes you just need a production partner. Sometimes you really need a strategic thought partner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Perfect. And knowing, knowing that at the beginning. Yeah. So we Got it. Um, so the next question I had for you, Leland, then is what is something you are struggling with in your design career right now? Oh, man, heavy question. Um, <laughs> what am I struggling with in my design career right now? I think what I'm struggling with in my design career right now is having clarity on what the future of design is. Oh, and that definitely. Now that's a heavy question. Naturally, when you're trying to figure out what the future of something is, you're also in the same way asking your question, well, what's my future? Mm-hmm. And I think in a post design thinking world, I think design is a bit lost. Um, it's a bit fragmented and that might be a necessary stage that it needs to go through. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's nonetheless, it's where I think we are. Um, and it may be a scenario where there is no monolithic point of view of design. Um, but I don't know that that's always going to be the case. I think there are higher order values that can unite a lot of disparate voices and a lot of disparate ambitions into a, into a common direction, into a shared vision and ambition. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't think we're there yet, but I do think it's really important because when you don't know where you're going anywhere, is fine. Yeah, that's very true. Got it. Okay. Yeah. That's uh that sort of brought up a whole other heavy question or what is the future of design? 
And I'm not going to ask you that, just so you know. <laughs> Did you break that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I want to switch it around from some of the areas um, in your career where you've maybe been through some mistakes and learned some lessons. And I want to hear about the project that you've been a part of that you're the most proud of, the one that makes your heart sing, or maybe even the biggest designed feather in your cap. Yeah, I think the one that I'm most proud of is, is frankly, the stuff that we did at Chobani, uh-huh. uh, particularly when we relaunched the brand. Um, you know, it was an unlikely success. It was uh, a scenario where we were building the team as we were doing the work. Mm-hmm. We were learning about the company and what was appropriate for the company as we were doing the work. We were rebranding the entire company and all of its products, mm-hmm. uh, which was an enormous scale. How many we SKUs at that it. point? I think there were like 200. Gosh. Um, but that was also inclusive of like redoing the website. It mm-hmm. was inclusive of uh, changing all out all the logo assets across the company and business cards. I mean, so it was, it was a total package and we had to do it in nine months. Wow. So I am not, um, I've never been through that kind of a process. So is it safe to say that taking on that amount of work and that sort of project in a nine month window, that's a challenge. It's safe to say that, right? Yes. Normally this amount of work probably would have taken two and a half years. Holy cow. So in that sort of rush prioritized process where you're going through things dramatically faster than in typical fashion, um, do you feel there was any, were there missteps or mistakes that you could share with us that were sort of learning moments in that process? Um, I wouldn't say there were mess ups in the process. I would say there were some strategic choices that were made and how, for instance, like our line of flips were designed that were based off of good research and solid logic that just ended up being wrong once it hit the market. And we learned that and we responded and we adjusted the design. Mm-hmm. Um, but truthfully, like it is part of the reason why I'm so proud of the work and the team and the company and how everyone across the company worked together to birth this really wonderful uh, design moment is everybody worked so well together and we learned so much along the way and there wasn't, there wasn't really any missteps along the way. I mean, sure. There were like design directions that we explored that we didn't like and it Mm -hmm. chewed up precious time and stuff, but I wouldn't call that a mistake. I would just call that part of the process of finding the right, of finding the right design. That's awesome. So the other story that I wanted to just sort of ask you if you maybe even had a story for this, but when you and Brian uh, founded Collins, um, you know, like you, we had mentioned earlier in the interview, there was, you were not immune to the same problems of any startup. Um, mm-hmm. Was there a moment or a job or a client that you landed where you were like, just, oh my gosh, amazing. We needed this. This is great. And it sort of reignited the journey. Uh, that would be Target. Got it. So I remember when we had that opportunity, we were doing a bunch of tiny, tiny projects Mm -hmm. uh, for Target at the time. And that was because we had an ally on on inside Target who really wanted to work with us and knew that the best way to do it was just to have us take on a lot of these very tiny projects before um, he was able to get us a larger project. Mm 
Um, and he, he today, his name's David Hartman. He's a, a wonderful friend of mine and uh, continues to be a wonderful client of Collins. Um, but he was able to get us into a pitch for um, a, a, quite a large retainer with the company. Mm-hmm. And um, we were the long shot. We were up against IDEO. We were up against um, some other very large heavy hitter design organizations. And I remember getting that brief and I remember thinking, we have to win this. We're going to win this. I know how to win this. And so Brian and I got together, put together a plan. Um, and we were very methodical about it and pitched it and won. And the client told us why he said, you, your team listened, your team understood what our problems were and were a- and are able to show why you were the right partner better than anyone else. And I think that was the kicker in all of it um, for, for Collins, because not only was it a, a big revenue win for us, mm-hmm. but it was also a moment when our new business efforts crystallized and that feedback that we got of you listened, that being the very first thing, became the um, tent pole for how we approached clients from there on out. Um, everything that we did, and anytime we talked with a client, we had a rule. It's called the 90-10 rule. You, have, you spend the first 90 minutes of any interaction with a potential client listening, listening and asking really smart questions. And only when you are invited by the client and maybe the last 10% of the meeting do you show any work. But you show it, if you do, through the lens of the previous 90% of the discussion. Yeah, and, and what, and what that, fits. Yeah, and it was, it was a winning formula. I mean, we, we, we never wanted for new business after that. That's awesome. So that was really the catalyst to putting the name in a, in a really good spot to have business come to you and sort of the role reversal. Yep. Yep. There was a definitely a point in time and I'm pretty sure it still continues to be this way where there were 45 RFPs waiting for us to respond to them. And we put in zero outbound effort to it. Wow. That's uh, incredible. Yeah. It, it's, it's a really good feeling after years of really struggling um, and, and learning a lot about yourself and a lot oh. about the type of company you want to become to have that moment where you can sit back and say, Oh my God, like there are, 45 companies who eagerly want to work with us so much so that they have only sent us the RFP. Uh, it's a very good feeling. Wow. And, and you know, the reason I wanted to really ask you and spend some time on these questions, you know, both with Chubani and your experience at Collins is, you know, think of the freelancer who's a couple of years out of school, really struggling to work in their butt off. Um, you know, everybody goes through this, even looking from the outside looking in at Chobani and Collins, like, oh my gosh, look at these agencies. Look at the the work that Chobani is doing for the consumer goods division. And, um, you know, being able to see that it's a journey for everybody. Yeah, you, you cannot escape the dragon of startup struggles. Nobody no. can. Nope. Um, so now a uh, question about sort of your, the tools and, and communities that you touch on for your creative, what is one design product, a tool, a website, or even a community that you just can't live without? Um, I, 
so this is going to be an obtuse response because I find my greatest inspiration in things that are not directly design okay. or design tools. Um, a big part of my design practice is storytelling. Through story, I find my way into aesthetic. I find my way into form. I find my way into solution. So if I don't have a story, then to me, I'm just making things that I think look cool. Mm-hmm. I need a story in order to give myself the discipline to know how to choose beyond my own ego what is a right choice and what is a poor choice. So I'm constantly consuming content about life. And there's a tool, an app called Pocket, which I use a lot. It is a app, it is an article-saving app. So anytime I'm bouncing around on the web through my phone or a desktop, there's a little button I push when I come to an article that saves it to my pocket account. And when I'm riding the subway or standing in line or I just have general time to kill, I whip open pocket and I read these articles. And these articles are about ideas that people have in the world. They're about stories that are happening. They're biographies. It's history. It's, it's all sorts of things. And none of it directly relates to anything I'm working on mm-hmm. at, at the given moment. But when I have a brief that's put in front of me and I have to react to it, all of a sudden, all that stuff that I've been reading in pocket over the last year lights up in my mind, aligns into a story, and all of a sudden I have a really interesting point of view with which to approach the brief. That's great. Because that, so in pocket, you have a huge variety of, um, of articles that you've saved and sort of touch on depending on what what comes in front of you. That's absolutely right. Very cool. And I hadn't heard of pocket, but I'm very same. I'm that way with uh, screenshots. I have so many screenshots on my phone of things that I saw that I loved for whatever reason. Um, But that would be a much better way of organizing things like that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So now's the time in the podcast where we do an ask it forward question. Um, So my previous guest, had an opportunity to ask a question of my next guest. She didn't know who it would be, um, but she put together a question. So my last guest was Candy Brophy. She is a freelance designer out of Melbourne, Australia. Um, And she wanted to ask my next guest, not knowing who it would be, um, do you know who designed the Nike swoosh? Um, I know everything about the woman except her name. Um. Carolyn Davidson in 1971. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, do you know what she was paid for that at the time? I mean, it was something like 15 bucks or something. She was a college student who just did it as a little freelance favor, but she later got repaid in stock. Yep, exactly. She was paid $35 for that logo back yep. in the day and then repaid in stock. And um, so Candy in Australia, one of her big... Um, you know, passions in life is sharing with people the accomplishments that women creatives and women inventors have have done and come up with. Um, so that was the reasoning for her question. Mm. Um, now, Leland, you have an opportunity to ask a question of the next guest. Um, I'm not going to tell you who it is, but you can ask them anything you want. What do you believe is true but cannot prove? <laughs> I like it. I really like it. Perfect. I'm going to ask that question of our next guest. 
And I've got just a couple of minutes here left with the timing of this interview, and I wanted to jump into a lightning round. Now, this is a little surprise for you. Um, I've got 10 questions, usually really short answers, whatever first comes to mind. Um, Are you ready for the lightning round? Yes, I am. All right. Question number one, tell us one of the nicknames that only your parents would know for you. Liebert. Liebert. You can have one superpower. What do you choose? The ability to absorb other superpowers. <laughs> That's a cheat. There's got to be a rule about that. Um, what's the last song you listened to? Um, High Times by the Black Crows. Oh, cool. I'm on a bit of a Black Crows kick myself right now. Um, ask for permission or ask for forgiveness later? Ask for forgiveness. Have you ever had a bad haircut? Yes. How long did you have to live with that haircut? Uh, two months. Whew, rough. Say one word in a different language. Fromage. Cheese. Favorite Disney character? Um, uh, the, the Incredibles. Ooh, which one? Uh, the, uh, I mean, they're all incredible. Yeah. The, the, um, the woman who makes the outfits for them. Oh, she's hilarious. <laughs> uh, Comic Sans or Papyrus? Comic Sans. On a scale of one to 10, how good are you at bowling? Two. I appreciate the honesty, Leland. You have to start over in your design career. Everything you have ever done has been erased from history except for one project. What is it and why? Uh, The Chobani rebrand. Perfect. Leland, you did it. You made it to the end of the Quickie Podcast. Fantastic. I really appreciate your time. I know you've got a packed schedule um, and you've got a stat holiday coming up. So I really appreciate you fitting this in. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. No, it was awesome. It was great meeting you, and um, we'll be in touch shortly. All right. Thank you so much for listening to the 50th episode of the Quickie Podcast. Thank you for your support so far. I'm really looking forward to bringing you another 50 and more after that. Please head over to iTunes and leave a review and a rating for the show. I'd really appreciate it. And everybody, have an awesome day. See you tomorrow.